Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Josh Smith Show. The Josh Smith Show is brought to you by Paragon Kilns. Paragon Kilns are some of the fastest heating and most accurate kilns in the world today. Uh, I, in my own custom knife-making business, and so many knife-makers that I know, use a Paragon Kiln uh, just to increase the accuracy and the consistency of which their knives are heat-treated. Check out the Paragon Kilns at paragonweb.com. Also brought to you by Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company knives are working knives for working people. All Montana Knife Company knives are 100% American-made, hand-finished, and hand-sharpened. We here at Montana Knife Company believe that manufacturing can be done here in the U.S., and that's where our knives are built. Check out MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and we are also on Instagram at Montana Knife Company as well as Facebook. Also brought to you by Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is a place I buy my belts, uh, buy a lot of my sandpaper. They also sell steel, grinders, heat treat ovens, just about anything else you can imagine. Maritime Knife Supply is located in Canada, so even though it takes a little bit longer to ship your stuff down here, you can take advantage of the exchange rate, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal when you're putting in a fairly big order. Check out MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and at MaritimeKnifeSupply on Instagram and Facebook. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the Josh Smith Show. Today, I'm joined by Will Stelter. Uh, Lives right here in Montana. Uh, He's an incredible young man, knife maker, uh, businessman, machine expert. um, and, And as you'll hear in the podcast, you'll hear his age. Uh, it's it's incredible the knowledge that he has for how young he is. Um, a lot of you will know Will from YouTube. Uh, will worked for Alex Steele. They built their YouTube videos together. Uh, and Will is now off on his own since Alec moved back to England. Uh, will is, is, is becoming a better and better knife maker every year. I've been watching his progress. Uh, he's got a very inquisitive mind. He wants to learn... He, he reminds me a lot of myself when I was a super young kid. I was constantly asking older guys questions. I was traveling to guys' shops, and I was very aggressive with trying to learn. And he's the same way. You'll see Will on his Instagram uh, traveling all over the place, seeking out knowledge, seeking out information. Uh, he's very engaging. Uh, he acts like he's 45 years old, even though he's probably half that age. Uh, He's an amazing young man, and uh, and his YouTube videos are pretty incredible. So uh, check him out. Check out his Instagram and all that stuff. He'll give that at the end of the podcast. Uh, but uh, I'm honored to call him my friend and uh, <clears throat> hope to uh, hope to actually maybe make some content together and, and, and do a project together at some point. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, Will Stelter. Will Stelter, how you doing, buddy? Josh Smith, I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So first thing, first things first. Do you just drive around with cool stuff on your trailer, like 
Just all the time, just to look cool? Pretty much. I just try to drive past your place as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, with, with fun stuff. With big, giant mills and bandsaws <laughs> and anvils. What's funny, I think every piece of machinery, except for maybe one in the last year, I've driven past your shop. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens that Montana is just a, a total, like, dry place from good machines. Yeah. Uh, but I check, I check Washington and, and specifically in like the Spokane area all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it seems, and we're, we're definitely kind of like that nice half, halfway point for you between, you know, where you live and in Spokane. So it's kind of nice to, uh, it's nice a good, to have a stop and point. It's a good stop point. Every time I drive past, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be here for 30 minutes because I'm on a tight schedule. And then like two hours later I get out yeah. of there. Yeah. Yeah. Pull that sucker right up tight there. Um, so right now on your uh on your trailer you've got a giant anvil. How much does that thing weigh? Uh it's a three hundred and ninety five pound Swedish coleswaw anvil that I got from our mutual friend Steve Schorzer. That's awesome. So wait, where's the other five pounds? I don't know. I was honestly I didn't know how exactly how much it weighed until I uh until I got it. I thought it was four hundred. Did I'm, you try returning it or get your money back from Steve? He, he wouldn't give it to me. I don't know what it was because <laughs> now that now it means that I'm going to have to buy another bigger anvil to get over that four hundred pound. Well, yeah, it's not a four hundred pound anvil. No, it doesn't it's like count. Just a baby. Oh, it's, 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 it's it is like it's we're joking about it, but I was like a little bit disappointed for <laughs> real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's awesome. So you got it from Schwarzer, mm-hmm. um, which just having something like that from the uh, a legend like Steve Schwarzer's reason enough to want to buy it and have it. Totally. Yeah. It's going to be, yeah, it, it's a, it's a lifetime tool for my shop for sure. That's the, the last anvil I think I'll ever need. I'm, I'm sure when, I'll buy more. But, when do you think it was made? Uh, so I looked up the history of Coleswap when I, before I got it and they started, that company was founded in like the 1540s or something like that. So like, before America, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they started doing steel casting in the 1880s or 90s, I think, mm. and uh, I think that's a pretty early anvil because they, they made anvils up, I think, until like the 60s or 70s, um, but the later anvils had a different stamping and, and, and whatnot, and it has uh, seemingly pretty crude stamping in it. Like it looks, it's, it's definitely like hand stamped. Uh, and it seems like their later stuff. There's no no info that I could find whatsoever about dates or timelines from that company or like specific stamps being from different dates and whatnot. Like some some different manufacturers. All yeah. of the American anvils have serial numbers, and we we know when they're from. Yeah. And whatnot, and a lot of other manufacturers are like that. But a lot of the European stuff doesn't have any date stamps or any any way to track that. But I think it's my guess, and this is a very rough guess, is probably pre 1920s. Um, so Mike is like 1890 to 1920, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, um, why are you hauling this around on your trailer? Uh, just for fun. It's a flex really. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got a little truck, so I need a big anvil to yeah, kind of balance compensate. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no. So, uh, I just got this thing, uh, Ooh, about, about a week and a half ago, uh, got it shipped up from Florida up to Montana, uh, and it had a couple little torch marks in the face where someone had used it for a cutting table for their like oxyacetylene torch, which is just a crime. Yeah. Heresy. 
uh, never do that. <laughs> um, cause you've got this big, beautiful hardened steel face that now has some dips and divots in it. And anything like that, that you forge on top of is going to get imprinted into your workpiece. Um, and so there was enough of them. There's, uh, p- three good ones on the face and it's a, you know, six and a quarter inch wide by 23 inch long face. So it's a pretty, pretty, pretty big working surface, but it was enough that I wanted to get that cleaned off. So I took it over to my friend, sorry, took that over to my friend Jason uh, at Fireball Tools Shop. He's got a 20,000 pound milling machine uh, with a 50 horsepower motor on it. And we just took one pass and cleaned that thing up. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Like, cause I mean, when you, when you think about I mean, when I, I saw that thing sitting on your trailer, so you think about putting that thing up on a milling machine, that has to be a giant-ass machine. Oh, it's ridiculous. And it's so funny because the photos of it and the video of it on top of that milling machine, it looks like it's a little baby anvil, like yeah. a like 100-pounder, 120, 120-pounder, like something yeah. you find on a farm. But it's so, a big industrial I, I I have a lot of people ask, and it's actually a good question because there's you know big influx of like eyeballs and stuff on you know, the knife world in the last 20 years, but especially in the last five or eight years. Um, how was it that anvils were traditionally made? I've, I've had that question a lot. Like, yeah. So, uh, there's, there's two methods they were made. Um, there's the forged anvils and then there's the cast anvils. And so, uh, there's, there was, um, in America specifically four manufacturers, uh, or four companies that made that forged anvils. Uh, there was, Trenton, Haybudden, uh, Arm and Hammer, and American American Rot, yeah, American Rot, uh, and so you've got an Arm and Hammer and a Haybudden, and I've got a Peter Wright and a Peter I've got, Wright. I've got I've got a Haybudden and two Peter Wrights. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. I thought the one from your grandfather was a Arm and Hammer. Never mm. mind. Uh, I don't think so. But Peter Wright was a, was an English company, and those are all forged, and so they took little scraps of wrought iron and built them up into uh, big chunks and forge these things underneath humongous steam hammers. Uh, and they would forge them in, uh, a couple different pieces and then forge weld them together. And that's how we, that's, those are kind of, there's two schools of thought. There's the school of thought where the people think that forged anvils are better. And then there's people who think the cast steel anvils are better. And those are the two different ways (laughs) of making anvils and, or, or cast iron, which everyone agrees are not great because, Mm -hmm cast iron isn't a, a, a suitable material for anvils because it chips out so easy. But steel um, steel or wrought iron is good. And, and the American manufacturers all had a wrought iron or a, a hard steel face on their wrought iron anvils. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's good because you've got like kind of a ductile, um, malleable body to it and then a hard steel face, which is really cool. And that method of, of manufacture is just awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the photos of anvils being forged from you know, a hundred years ago are unbelievably cool. Um, how, 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 uh, how hard would it be to redo the face on your anvil to actually take it off and put a new face on it? Oh, um, well there are generally people don't forge weld them back on, but there are guys nowadays who, um, sometimes, uh, if, if a face didn't have a good forge weld, they could bust off. And so guys will take like a, a piece of tool steel or something like that. And, uh, and like put hard facing stick uh, weld rod on there um, and like stick a new face on it. But it's not, it's not really ever going to be the same as having a, a homogenous forge welded, right. uh, forge welded face. Um, but yeah, so cast or forged um, cast steel anvils are cool because they're, they're fully steel and they're generally uh, have a kind of a deeper level of hardening and they can be hardened all the way around and you don't have 
you have, I guess, the worries of casting flaws, but you don't have the worries of forge welding flaws. So they kind of both have their drawbacks. Um, forging was the original method because they didn't have the ability to cast steel in the, you know, yeah, Roman times. Imagine, um, just think about like going back to those days when they were making those anvils, how cool it would have been to be just there for a day. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. I've some of the photos that I've seen, uh, especially I haven't seen, I've seen a handful of the, the anvil forging photos, but like the big chain making shops from the like turn yeah. of the century, you see this like eight year old kid sitting on the ground with a 12 pound sledgehammer next to him. And like that kid just worked a 14 hour long day yeah. <laughs> in a shop where probably 20 people died that year. And they've got these like, hundred pound two or three handed sledgehammers were like it'd have three guys swinging the same sledgehammer yeah and uh yeah just huge anvils and they're forging by hand like six inch thick pieces of wrought iron into chain yeah just yeah we i can't even imagine the 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 heat that that would put off while you were trying to forge it oh yeah the the biggest pieces that i've forged uh probably 25 or 30 pounds and yeah when you're swinging a sledgehammer at it you're getting burned through your shirt yeah um for anyone listening if you do find like cool old anvils post vices stuff like that in the state of montana you you have to call josh smith first and i did that last week him to be fair i don't know about that because you told me you bought something else didn't you buy something else out from under me first when i sent you that post vice why were you even snooping in my area? Because I was going to be driving through. Yeah, that's not allowed. I didn't buy anything. You need though. to you need to pass to even drive through. <laughs> so Will Will text me a picture of a post vice, which I did actually message the guy, and it was already gone. Yeah, that was a great price. <clears throat> did you buy it? You bought <laughs> just, it just didn't a little you? bit. I did. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, for people who are newer, or I mean, for anybody, if you're interested in finding anvils and stuff like that, like keeping an eye out on craigslist and facebook marketplace and places like that um and even like uh you know one of the guys in my shop this weekend was talking about some ranches and stuff that he's seen around where he lives at in wyoming where he's going to go knock on some doors and um you can you can sometimes do that where you just knock on someone's door and be like hey do you happen to have any old anvils like you can usually tell those places that if you don't see the anvil sitting out there you're pretty sure there's one around there somewhere buried yeah, and that's probably the fastest way to do it because you can, I mean, if you keep a diligent eye out on on those, on those, yeah, Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist, you probably will find something eventually. But there's also 200 other guys who just watched a season of Forge and Fire who are looking for an anvil also. Right. Um, and so if you have the, the, yeah, the, I'm forgetting how to talk right now. If you actually go ahead and go knock on doors, yeah, you're going to be the first one to find a, a good right. Take the initiative to go do it. That's the word. Yeah. Well, you're a young kid. I don't expect you to have a fully functional I dropped out vocabulary. Of college, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how old are you? I'm 22. 22. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm not a I'm master smith old. yet. I really actually, man, yeah, could be your dad. That's weird. I mean, I would have gotten an early start, but I'm 40, so... Not, that's amazing. That's, that's possible. Yeah, yeah, it's very possible. I, I know people, yeah, who had yeah. kids at 18. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So it's amazing because you're, um, you've already actually have, you're as young as you are, you already kind of have a bit of a history in the knife making game so far. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a young history, but you've definitely got a history. It's not like you're brand new, mm-hmm. um, which 
is really cool and actually um in a in a different way but you definitely kind of remind me of myself just from the standpoint that like you're you know I was the kid in the knife world um and you've definitely kind of been the kid in the knife world for a while and now you've kind of grown out of that and grown into I mean you're still a kid to a lot of guys but you're not a kid which mm. that's still going to be that way probably for another 10 years for you yeah. um you know that's how I was always I mean I was you know in my late 20s and early 30s and going to knife shows and I was still the kid you know um once they know you when you're 15 16 you're, you're just kind of always 15 or 16 for a while yeah um but you've gained a lot of respect, which is really cool. Um, I mean, because you've, you've earned it. You haven't just been given it. You've definitely earned your respect. And just like your knowledge on the anvils, that's kind of why I started into that because I think it's just an example right off the top of, like, your knowledge of some history about, you know, just anvils. And I know you can go into post vices or mills or a lot of that other stuff. I mean, you're a lot more educated on a lot of that stuff than myself or, or really probably most, most people because you obviously are passionate about it. Yeah, I, I honestly, I like the old tools and the history and the nostalgia of it probably just about as much as I like knife making. Yeah, well, you yeah. can tell because that's like some of your videos and a lot of what you do is that, not necessarily just making, you know, every single video is a knife, mm-hmm. which yeah. is really cool. And it, and it, and it is cool because, yeah, actually those videos, especially on my own channel, have done better than than some of the knife videos, which is which yeah. is pretty funny. People enjoy seeing the like, crusty old stuff get yeah fixed up a little bit which is really nice and it's yeah. i'm i'm glad that i get to do that and not just like take some junk kitchen knife that they made rusty on purpose and then put new handle scales on it and call it a restoration which are like right. a lot of videos that go viral today right yeah yeah and is it is it is it is it because of your height that you like these big tools? I mean, what what's why not why yeah. not the miniature? Why yeah, not I've got to compensate somehow. Um, and yeah. I, I I bought a small truck, uh, and so <laughs> yeah, I got to do it with the got to do it with the, with yeah. the big big power hammers and anvils and yeah. vices and whatnot. So we you haven't been on my podcast yet. So like for um, my millions and millions of listeners out here, uh, not to make you nervous, I'm sneaking up on Rogan. It's close. Uh, so what, how, how is it that you got at such a young age, you know, into, I don't even know if it was knife making at that time or maybe it was, but how did you get into this whole world? Uh, yeah. So I, I got into, it, it was knife making originally that, mm-hmm. that kind of drug me in and then it was just kind of all downhill from there with all the machines and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I think I was, mm, I want to say 11 the first time I, saw anyone make a knife or heard anything knife related or anything like that. Uh, and so I, I was pretty intrigued. I didn't immediately think that I was going to be able to do that because no one in my family, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood outside of Seattle, uh, and, and no one in my family was a metal worker or anything like that. Uh, and so I was kind of did, had, had zero idea of where to start. Um, and, uh, so I was at a summer camp and one of the counselors made a knife as a present for another counselor. And I was like, okay, that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Didn't know you could do that. And I think he had probably watched some YouTube videos about it and that's how he figured out how to do it. Um, and then there's a couple other like little things where like toured a, a CNC titanium, uh, medical parts manufacturing facility, uh, outside Seattle at a shop class that I had. Um, and that was my, uh, kind of first introduction to big metalworking machines and whatnot. And it was just super intriguing as well. 
And then the first time I ever touched a knife to work on it, I was in Boy Scouts at the time as well. And, mm-hmm. and so that was a, a good inspiration also just because being outside, using a knife a lot, it was, yeah, intri- that was just, yeah, another another avenue or another reason why I wanted to get into it. Um, right. But the, <laughs> the, I went to a, a private Christian school um, outside Seattle and uh, I somehow convinced our principal to let me bring a like, 10 inch long Pakistani Bowie knife that I bought off Amazon into our wood shop yeah. to let me throw some handle scales on it. Yeah. And so that was the first time I ever worked on a knife. Uh, I think I made like square walnut or, or purple heart pegs and like right. walnut handle. The typical on. shop class woods. Oh, it was disgusting. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> um, it's a, uh, it's interesting because there's like little parallels with my story with being 11 and not having parents that were in it. Like people tend to automatically think like, Oh, your dad must've made knives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, similar that way. And, um, very sim- obvious the same with like, I was the only kid allowed in school to bring knives to school and show my teachers and, you know, yeah. show the shop teacher and, and whatnot. But, um, where, and it's interesting when you said YouTube and I started kind of doing the math in my head, like, um, the difference definitely for you and I was like, there, I, I'm old enough. There was no internet. There was no YouTube at 11, which makes me sound like a dinosaur, <laughs> you know, oh but I'm not that much older than you. Like no, no, the difference not. between that 18 years difference in age is literally like the internet. Yeah. Which is wild. And, and to be fair, like even at that time, YouTube, like there was some knife makers on there at that time, but really not a whole lot. And that's kind of what I was getting at is I would almost say that you're like, the beginning of like that YouTube generation Mm -hmm. where like from that point forward, it started to really grow. And that's where like Facebook um, started to become a thing a little after that. Mm -hmm. But I I remember Facebook being out there and I wished I'd had more foresight on, on that because like it was just that whole social networking platform and sharing pictures. But um, there were, a few years there where Facebook was around and it really wasn't used for business at all. Um, you know, and there wasn't the videos and you think about what it was like to record a video back then and upload it. You're like at that time we were talking a lot of places where dial up and, you know, so even when you learned, like, like you say, there was YouTube, but how many knife makers were actually out there putting up good content on YouTube? Yeah, not, not not very many at all. Yeah, it's yeah. When I when I go and every once in a while I'll look up like how to make a knife on YouTube and there's like a thousand videos about it and right. some of them are like pretty dang good. Yeah. So I I would say I got my kind of initial inspiration from YouTube, but I didn't I didn't make a usable knife from watching YouTube videos. I made kind of knife shaped objects. I figured out uh, how to make my carta. Um, I didn't didn't figure out how to heat treat, didn't figure out how to grind a bevel or anything like that um, from YouTube. I, yeah. I, who, who was the, so who was the first maker, like real maker that you ran into that like started to change the game for you and like kind of show you that like, oh, okay, I don't know enough. I got to learn what this guy knows. Um, so the first maker who I met was a, oh gosh, dang it. He's a maker at a, at a Issaquah, Washington um, I'm his, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He makes, uh, like classic D2 polished bevel, like kind of 70s style, 70s, 80s style hunting knives. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him that I was interested in making a chef's knife and he was like, why would you do that? You buy a good chef's knife at the store for 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and 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 kind of shortly thereafter, I met. Uh, oh man, I probably met. Goodness gracious, Dave Lish. Yeah, um, I was at, wondering if it was Lish at his at his shop, at his swap meet. Um, I met Mareko at that at that swap meet, um, and then uh, after that, I met Daniel O'Malley at his at his own store. And actually, you know what? I probably went to his store, and I, I think the first five or six times I went to his store, I didn't meet him. Um, but in the spring of 2016, I went and hung out with Salem Straub at his shop in in Tenasket, and he taught me how to forge. Uh, the first time I went over there to visit, I saw him on Forged in Fire, yeah. and I was like, "He lives." That's 2016, so you're like five years ago. Exactly. Uh, yeah, five five or six years ago. Yeah, spring 2016. Yeah, five yeah. five and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, and I had just at that point made a, a usable knife that had a edge that was thin enough to cut stuff, and it was heat treated. <laughs> well, if you you know similar similar to me a little bit where I was lucky enough to be involved with some really good makers when I was young. Um, you named a few guys, Dave Lish, Mareko Malmasi, and, and um, Salem, Straub. Like, you could have met 10 knife makers in a different part of the country and not met one one that even knew half of what those guys know. Oh, the, all of those guys are So amazing. not that they were necessarily, like, your direct you know, you weren't directly like working in their shop every single day. Like just what you can pick up and, and learn by a conversation of a couple hours without even doing any work in their shop. Like the, the amount of knowledge you can pick up and inspiration um, with guys like that is totally. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. All those guys are just, yeah. Amazing craftsmen and they all know way too much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I saw I saw Salem on Forged in Fire. Um and this was kind of the beginning of what I think is uh one of my best skills in knife making, which is the ability to intrude on people and invite myself to their shop. Yeah, in a that's way why that, you're here today. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh You're man. a master intruder. <laughs> I know, but here's the thing, it works. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, that I, is, I tell people though, like you can do, like you said, the YouTube thing now is like people got it down. I mean, obviously you guys have gotten it down, but, but, um, I tell people like, don't just rely on that. Like no, there, go knock on doors. I had uh, a guy at one point email one of my friends who runs a blacksmith shop in Canada. And he's like, Hey, I've never actually done any metalworking before. Uh, but I want to come apprentice with you. Um, I think I'm, I'm probably going to be pretty good at it. I have about a hundred hours of video experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of watching video <laughs> literally yeah he said he called it video experience yeah um, so watching youtube is great and it's a great way to like kind of understand some basic concepts and if you have like a specific question that can be answered in a video that's awesome but it's not even close to as good as getting into someone's shop hanging out seeing what it feels like seeing what it's supposed to actually look like because video is never going to be exactly the same i mean unless you're shane taylor i mean just from from some of his video game experience he's He's basically been <laughs> combat ready and and been waiting for for his jet uh, to go to war. Pretty much for the last twenty years, he's yeah. been telling us he's ready. I think so. Yeah, he really. I think he kind of um, puts himself up there as one of the world's best dog fighters. Mm. Yeah, he's really good at fighting dogs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so where where in the uh, where in the process did you meet Alex Steele? Uh, so I met Alec. In 2017, uh, kind of early 2017, 
I think he saw me hanging out with our friend Jake Farum. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I had just found out who he was. I had like watched a couple of his videos and followed him on Instagram. Uh, and he saw me hanging out with our mutual friend Jake Farum, who he had spent time with in America. And Jake had visited his shop in England. Uh, and uh, he followed me back and just asked me a couple questions about knife making. And we just hit it off right away, became great friends. Uh, and he's like, well, you always got an open invite to the shop. And I was like, well, as it just so happens, I'll be in Europe this summer. Uh, and so uh, went on family vacation to Italy for a little while uh, with my family. That's why it's a family vacation. <laughs> yeah. Nailed it. Uh, and then I stopped back. Uh, and the first time I met Alec, I was stepping off a train in Norwich to hang out with him for like eight days or something like that. Uh, and we built a sword in that time. We were from like... 17 hour days. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was a great time. And so that was the first time I actually hung out with him. Uh, and then in that, and that was July of 2017. And in January of 2018, um, he came out, he was in New York, uh, went to go see some speaker there or something like that. Uh, and he came and just hung out for like four days the end of January in Montana to hang out and go skiing just cause he needed a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up deciding he wanted to move here after that, which I don't know who visits Montana at the end of January and thinks, this is great. Yeah. I want to live here. Not very many people. There's going to be a lot in like this January that decide to leave Montana after they had moved here in June. Good. Yeah. Got to hate those transplants. Yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah. Like especially the ones from Washington. Yeah. The Just young the ones, the 22 year olds. Anyway, so... Uh, the first time that I'd kind of heard from you, or I think you made kind of contact with me over Instagram, and I and I think I I probably accidentally blew you off. Yeah, uh, accidentally blew me off for like two whole years. Yeah, which I was bad, and I would probably argue that it was less of a blow off, and mostly my old ass didn't know how to run Instagram or even check <laughs> messages. <laughs> so, oh, um, man. but I I met you when you were. Uh, I think when we finally connected, you were kind of like in the process of moving out here. Um, um, I don't, I think, so I think I messaged you right when I was in like moving uh, and driving back and forth a lot. Yeah. Um, Cause I had seen you on Forge and Fire and Mareko said you were a great guy. So thanks that. Mareko. Yeah. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think I, I think I had been working with Alec for a little while when you finally, you messaged oh, yeah. me back. I think you, I'm pretty sure the first time we actually like had any communication, I think you hopped on a live stream that I was doing and started just giving me shit for whatever I was doing. Oh, really? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So what's funny is I still, because I don't watch much for YouTube videos and that stuff, or I didn't back then, I try to keep up on a little bit more of it now as I've kind of learned how all that technology works. But um, what was really funny is I I didn't even know like who Alex Steele was like the first time I like finally came to visit you or however that worked. Like I had kind of heard, I guess I'd kind of heard about him at that point, but didn't even really understand like what he was doing or what you guys were doing kind of collectively. Um, but it was cool. Um, you know, and I don't know like the time frames of all that stuff, but I do know at one point I, I was, uh, you guys were nice enough to have me down when I was, I was in Bozeman and I came by and Niels Vandenberg was, was in uh, town from South Africa mm-hmm. uh, working with you guys and stopped in and you guys are in the middle of shooting a, a uh, stiletto video. Yeah. Not and the like 
sexy yeah, heel the heels, kind. not the knife, the heels. Oh yeah, we got Neil's 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 was heel. prancing. It was it was really cute. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, those big fingers, he just has a hard time with the little buckles. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, it was. But it was it was really cool because uh, Alec was very welcoming. You were very welcoming, and, and it was really kind of mind blowing to see that whole process of like you know it's not just like a couple guys in a uh, like a little dark little garage trying to make a video. Like it was a full on production with with employees and and cameras and boom mics and like the whole nine yards. And it was very professional, clean shop like. What you guys were doing, um, you know, and I kind of skipped over it, but like essentially what ended up happening is you ended up moving out here. Alec moved out here and you guys kind of teamed up. Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah, uh, I co-hosted his channel with him for two years um, out there in in Bozeman uh, before he moved away. And yeah, for those of you who don't know, Alec is, uh, I think, the the largest metalworking and blacksmithing knife making YouTuber um, in the world. Uh, And so... Yeah, it was a pretty pretty awesome experience to get to do that. Yeah, and you guys did a lot of really great stuff. And part of what made what you guys were doing pretty cool was the fact that he was also super young. Mm-hmm. Like, what? How old is he? Uh, I think he's getting ready to turn twenty four here in a couple. Yeah, months. Yeah, so he's just a couple years older than you, but basically both young kids that were like just took off and and built like a a hell of a business and and a really cool really cool thing and high energy and and doing some really neat projects and. Uh, um, it was cool because you were clearly, um, very passionate yourself about like becoming, you know, a a good knife maker. It wasn't for you just, it didn't seem like, and and that's just me kind of looking from the outside, like you were as interested in just being a YouTuber. Like you, you seem to have a real like genuine interest in like the craft of knife making. Totally. Yeah. That's definitely my, my, my first love, uh, and it's definitely way more important to me than 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 being a YouTuber. Uh, but what I do see, I see YouTube as as a tool to get to build really cool stuff. Yeah. And not have some of the other worries that come along with being a full time knife maker. Um, like for example, I mean we've all been there. You work on something for a long time and it breaks, and great, you're out. You know, two weeks of work. Right. Um, and knife makers, I mean, there's kind of a a, a a very wide variety of the way that people make money with knives, especially nowadays between like classes and uh, online content and, and selling knives. If you want to do really nice knives, you want to do a lot of cheap knives. How do you want to do it? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm more drawn to the, the fancy fun stuff um, or what I think is fun. Uh, but yeah, I see YouTube as, a, as an awesome tool to get to first off, show off the process of doing cool things. Uh, and then also, um, yeah, kind of have a little bit of insurance so that if I do mess something up, then it's not the end of the world. And well, I'm it's not. that diversification exactly. of your business. And I, and I was, I was somebody that didn't have that for, you know, foresight when I was my first time around making, you know, custom knives full time with four young kids and house payments and that whole, whole nine yards, which, you know, that was, you know, it's definitely, you know, uh, whether you're smarter or whatever, it's de- than than I was. Like that's definitely, uh, it's an advantage to be single and on your own. Yeah, you can definitely get by on beans and rice a little easier as a single person than, mm-hmm. you know. And but I'm sure you don't have plans on being single your whole life. So you have to like you're smart because you're setting it up 
And, and I get a lot of people messaging me like with my recent changes in my life, like quitting my job and chasing my passion and going full time and whatnot. But I'm not doing it like recklessly without, no. without some, like I've changed my business model and what I'm doing because I need it to be more solid and more diverse and, and more stable. And, uh, you know, when I was making high end custom knives one at a time, I didn't have a revenue stream coming in. Like, let's just say it's 500 bucks a month even. Yeah. Like that can pay one of your vehicle payments or two of your vehicle payments or whatever. If it's a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks a month, like now your house payments probably covered. And, um, it's a real wise model that you've set up that, you know, and it's also cool because it's not just about the money. Like you're actually able to share your passion and your knowledge with people around the world, which is super cool. Totally. I, and I, I really do enjoy that. Um, because as I mean, I'm obviously imperfect, but I, I feel like I get to do some pretty cool stuff for, for a young guy. And I have the options to kind of make, make harder decisions, I guess. Um, or maybe not take the easiest routes. Um, and so it's cool to get to share that with people as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and also the other great thing about YouTube is that when you do burn out making knives, you can go work on a machine and make just as much money doing that right. as you would making a knife. And it's still a great time. And you still get to share it with people. Well, and it's a really creative way. Like uh, back when I would make a, a custom knife, now I got to sell it. Exactly. And now you're kind of starting cold turkey unless you're good. You know, some guys are good about doing uh, like um, like the work in progress videos on Instagram or Facebook. There was stuff back when in the dinosaur age that I was in, you know, like a blade forums and stuff like that where you could use some of those tools to your advantage to help sell your stuff, but you're kind of naturally building a customer base and interest in that project that where by the time, even if it takes you two months to finish it, um, you, you, you've basically got people waiting in line, practically fighting over it, which totally that takes out a lot of that stress and worry. Cause I would build knives for a long time and worry and stress the entire time if I was going to be able to sell it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a real, like that stress wears on you and that's hard to repeat month after month and it's hard on the spouse. And, yeah. um, so it's, it's smart what you're doing with that. Um, it, it is really funny because there's like, and maybe, maybe it's the grass is always green on the other side, but I don't have very many actual, uh, like hardcore collectors that are collecting my stuff. It, I have a lot of new time, uh, like first time, first time buyers, Right, um, who have never paid, you know, two thousand dollars for a knife before. Yeah, they just have the money, and they see that it's cool, and they see that it's worth it, and so they go for it. Um, which sketches me out a little bit because it's, it's frankly pretty easy to mess up a, 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 yeah. a, an expensive knife. And thankfully, I haven't had anything come back. I'm I'm pretty pretty clear about care instructions and stuff on my website and whatnot. Right. Um. But yeah, I. Uh, well, I and it's. I guess kind of going through some of this stuff and part of the point I wanted to kind of cover with some of these things that you're doing and, uh, you know, that I, that I think are really cool. Cause, um, and, and I'll backtrack a little bit. So you, and, and I have a point in this, you, you no longer now work for Alec cause Alec moved back to, uh, England, right? Yeah. And yeah. he's operating his business. You went out on your own. I'm back in a dark, dingy garage. By yeah. Myself. Yeah. Uh, not too dark, not too dingy. <laughs> Pretty nice. Uh, but, what was that last winter, basically? Uh, yeah, January first was my first day by myself. Okay, yeah, basically same as me this year. But yeah. uh, 
but the point is, is you, you've been smart because now you're off on your own. You don't have that paying job from maybe somebody else. And you're, you're now crafting a, a pretty solid business model. And for all these people that want to just bail off and go chase their passion and make knives, like you do have a responsibility to your family and, you know, your debts and, you, you know, yeah. bills you owe and stuff. And so when you start to think of that kind of stuff as a knife maker, when these, when these people that are listening to this start thinking about that kind of stuff, they can start to build and set that stuff up for maybe when they want to quit their job two years from now. Yeah. Um, you can start to build a, a little bit of a YouTube presence possibly, or mm-hmm. an Instagram following or Facebook or, and you know, they, people, people should, you know, kind of curtail it towards their, their, you know, expertise and, and strengths and not exactly copy somebody, but yeah, you definitely have to like, and I don't think there are very many people who are just going to like take up knife making in the next week, quit their day job over it. Right. Because <laughs> it's, it's funny. Uh, it's easy to see people who work for themselves and you're like, Oh, they're not working that nine to five, man. That's, that's really attractive. No, right. they're working <laughs> yeah. the seven to seven to nine. Yeah. Like this know? year, a guy asked me, uh, yesterday, um, how much I've golfed this year. And it's not once, you know, where yep. when you have a day job, you, you can kind of tend to have time to go golf, but yeah. and diversification in a knife making business might not necessarily be a YouTube channel. Like there's a lot of people that you j- should not go on YouTube. Like that would be bad for you. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> face for radio. Um, <laughs> and also like there's a, that's a skill that like I know shooting some of my little video stuff I've done and whatnot, like, I'm, I'm sure you would get better at it over time. I would get better at it over time, but it's, you're not. It's definitely a learned skill, but I think it's also like a. Yeah, but some people just aren't cut out for it. Yeah. Um, just, just some like people anything. aren't, see, some people aren't cut out to make knives at all. Yeah. Or, you know, to be a math teacher. Yeah. You know, but if you're, if you're going to do it, you can diversify your business, maybe even in just what you make and what you offer, whether it's learning how to make, like, that's one thing I would say that I, I was pretty good about is. I could make hunting knives. I could make buoys. I could make fighters. I could make Damascus and folding knives. And, and that's where people would say, Oh, are you a folder maker? Like you, cause they'd see maybe my last three knives were all folders. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, you're a folder maker. No, I'm a knife maker. Yeah. Like I can make, like, I don't want to make a lot of swords cause I'm not, that's not really my passion and what my expertise is, but I've made some swords and I can. I think it's like, quick side note about swords. It's worth knowing how to do swords, but I don't find them any more satisfying than finishing a knife. Oh, they're but miserable. They're way harder. Yeah. And they take so much longer. Yeah. When you start figuring out, you know, and that's the other thing, like, for people that are listening is, is the fancier the knife, probably the less per hour that knife maker's making. Oh, it's ridiculous. My favorite projects that I've ever done for my for myself, I made, like, $7 an hour on. Yeah. Yeah, and that tends to be when you sit there and carve on one side of one handle for a week, like, you're you're probably not making a hundred dollars an hour no. at the end of that knife project no the passion projects do not pay as well yeah they're more fun but they definitely don't pay as well and that's what i'd say if guys are interested in doing the fancy stuff or damascus or whatever you know if you can keep that diversification and make you know some little bird and trout knives and some kind of that quick money mm-hmm. people tend to call them their bread and butter knives they're not actually for bread and butter um but Every they, knife is some for of bread them. and butter if you use it for bread and butter, though. It, that is true. So is your finger. It's fair. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do dishes. <laughs> so you can just lick the dishes. Oh, good. Yeah. 
But uh, so when you left uh, and kind of parted ways with Alec, and or well, when he left, and then you kind of did your own thing, um, how did that work as far as a shop space? Because you had, you had a fair amount of your own equipment at Alex, I would assume, because you'd been building that up. Not a whole lot. I sold a lot of the stuff that I had from before working with him. Uh, and so as far as the like real, real stuff that I brought to my own shop after that, um, I had a 25 pound little giant that I had bought while working for Alec. Um, I had my anvil, I had my forge, uh, I had a belt grinder that I don't use anymore because uh, I actually bought one from Alec because it's a great grinder. Yeah. Um, but we won't talk about it because it's not a TW90 and I agree with your thoughts on, on that whole. Yeah. Whole shebang. Um, by, by TW90s. Yeah. They're, they're the first and they're wonderful but well we can talk about yeah, that later on we digress um yeah so i really didn't have a whole lot so basically everything that's in my shop right now except for like five or six bench vices uh, an anvil hammer so you kind of had to set up yeah big and time kind of had to set up in a hurry yeah thankfully i uh yeah i was super super blessed um i i had uh yeah i at at the end of the fall of, or fall of 2020, um, I was looking to buy a house and my grandfather who grew up in Montana was looking to move back. Um, he wanted to move my grandmother over here, um, for kind of their last, last, uh, time together. Um, and so he asked me to buy into a house with him and we actually found just a killer place, um, with an awesome shop at it. And so for the last, yeah, last little while of, I've been there and moved into that shop. Um, and then, yeah, just filled it out pretty quick, um, which was which was pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. Um, usually, uh, you know, like, because have your parents moved out here too? Or just their grandparents? Yeah, they, they've got yep. a place out here as well. That's and what I thought. So you, usually the time. kid moves back home with the parents, but the parents actually in this case move out and yep. in with the kid. <laughs> exactly. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, so it's cool though because like, having your family all around like that and and let's face it i mean where you live the the prices there have gone insane oh, i mean it is super stupid. expensive all so those stupid transplants from washington from washington that are 22 Ugh, make I knives hate them. i know <laughs> <laughs> so you know the prices have gone crazy so free you know and there again like being a knife maker it's it's you know it's it's pretty hard to just go to a bank and say I want to borrow six seven hundred five hundred thousand dollars based on this income that I think I'm gonna maybe make you know so um, it's it's cool that you were able to work that out with your family and and I've seen your pictures on Instagram I haven't actually been to your shop yet you've never invited me yeah what the hell um, <laughs> so uh, for those of you listening that is some hot garbage that Josh just said. <laughs> Yeah. He gets an invite like every 15 minutes. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, so, it, but I've seen your shop. Like, first of all, it's absolutely just gorgeous. View. Oh, it's, oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I've got a, a killer view of the, yeah, the Bridger Mountains, the Absaroka Mountains, the Gallatin Mountains. Yeah. How far could you shoot a bowling ball there? Um, Very. Do you got a good landing spot? Well, I mean... Out of sight, out of mind, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it anything. <laughs> I mean, you got to prove that it's actually come down. Exactly. It could go into orbit, space junk. There we go. Space balls. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> so, oh. uh, 
did you have to revamp this shop or was it like, what was the condition of the shop when you bought it? Yeah. So it was, um, it had, um, had a grinding room already. Wasn't originally meant to be a grinding room. Obviously it was supposed to be like a tack room or something like that. Yeah. I'm sure Um, they built it as a grinding room. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It already had the little label on the door and everything. It was Mm -hmm. great. Um, no. So there's a, yeah. So when, when you walk in, there's kind of like a main entryway thing, uh, with a little office on one side, bathroom, uh, and then there's, and that's about 400 square feet or so. Uh, and then you walk into the main room, which is about a thousand square feet. Uh, and then there's a little, uh, like 150 square foot, uh, grinding room kind of off in the corner there. Uh, and so it was kind of segmented out uh, a couple different rooms, but, uh, very, very usable. And like, it was, it was really just right for, for what I needed. When Will says grinding room, that that's something that, um, as, as, as people that are listening to this that may be trying to set up a shop or for the first time or have, are working in a shop, um, it's one of the best kind of designs and, and things that I did with my shop, though. I wish my grind room was a little bit bigger so I could fit a little more in it. A couple more um, people for when yeah. you have everyone grinding in there. You, you play some loud club music and get everyone in there. Grinding, grinding. on each other. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Um, so when with these grinding rooms, it's nice to be able to go in there, do a bunch of dirty grinding work. <laughs> He's going to snort coffee. I just know it. A uh, bunch of dirty stuff in there. Um, but when you're, when you're doing that work, like a lot of times we're grinding ivories or these synthetic materials, um, even just the steel dust and the smoke and whatnot. And it's nice, especially like with mine, I've got a dust collection system that doesn't actually really do a good job of collecting dust, but it does create a negative pressure in the building where the air in my big shop that I kind of sit and do my 90% of my work is being forced to go into that grinding room and it keeps all that dust in there. And so I can leave my dust collector on for a little while when I'm done and it keeps the rest of the shop really clean. And more importantly, it keeps you healthy. Um, so it is nice to be able to have, even if you don't have the dust collector, if it's a fan in a window yeah. or just a door, you can close on it when you leave. Yeah. That's, that's all I've got right now. And it keeps the rest of the shop. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It really sucks to grind on a bunch of handle material and then have to go sit out there and do some filing and some hand sanding or, or whatever, and just sit in a fog of kind of poisonous dust from some exotic material. Yeah. The, the shop that I was in before Alex shop that I, the, the second shop that I worked in, in Montana, uh, was a, a thousand square foot shop uh, and it did not have a grinding room and I didn't take the time to frame it in because I was renting. Mm-hmm. And in the space of about a year, um, or I, I think I worked out of it full time for like seven months before Alec got there. And that whole place was just full of toxic dust. Yeah. Well, and all the all your other equipment, mm-hmm. um, even some of your precision if you have ways and some, some of your machines or whatever, but... Uh, my, you know, your calipers and just yeah. all your materials. Like it just sucks. Like I'm, I'm a fairly tidy person. Um, try to keep my shop pretty nice and I just don't like it being a dungeon. Yeah. It's, it is really sucky. Uh, ways for those of you who are wondering are like, um, for machines that have pieces that move back and forth, which is what makes it a machine. Um, if, if you get gritty dust in there over time that moving back and forth acts as an abrasive and and wears it down and uh, destroys the machine faster than it normally would destroy itself so yeah yeah so um what what are a couple of your favorite pieces of equipment that you've that you've bought because i know like like i say 
I mean, we were joking about earlier, but it's actually true. Like every time you come through, there's the last time you came through, all your tires were flat. Oh, it was stupid. Yeah. Like that was, that was a heavy load for a, for a real man's pickup. Yeah. And, and for your Prius pickup. Yeah. It was, it was extra heavy. It was, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, so you see um, what I did there? Yeah. It was good. (laughs) Um, uh, my, uh, I decided to compensate for my Prius pickup at that point um, with a 1958. Wait, wait, did I have the lathe last time or was it? Yeah, the lathe and the bandsaw. Uh, no, the I think the last time was just the lathe, and then but the time before that, I had the bandsaw mill and another bandsaw. That's right. Yeah, because my bandsaw weighs. What do you think my porta band weighs? Six, seven pounds, something like that. Yeah. What's your bandsaw weigh? Uh, twenty two hundred pounds course it does <laughs> <laughs> gotta compensate somehow yeah but uh, i mean the cool thing in in defense of that is like like my surface grinder is is big heavy surface grinder mm-hmm. the stuff they made back then isn't really uh very useful in machine shops today because with the cnc the computer controlled stuff and and the speed at which they're trying to do things and tool changing and whatnot a lot a lot of those old machines have kind of been phased out for for production um yeah but it doesn't mean that those machines aren't accurate and it doesn't machine that mean that they're not still useful. Yeah. We kind of hit right in the sweet spot of like, they're not useful for industrial stuff and it's too big for a hobbyist in their garage. And yeah. so we get, we hit the market of like really expensive machines when they were new and they're like dirt cheap now. Right. It's awesome. It's basically, and literally a lot of times it is like, if you can just come and get it, you can have it type situation. Pretty much. Yeah. Get it out of the way. That bandsaw, uh, you can still buy them new. Um, they're $40,000 now Mm -hmm. and I bought mine for 700 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. 2,200 pound machine. It's it's probably worth more than that. And unfortunately this is the problem. A lot of people actually as heavy as that stuff is are hauling them to scrap yards, which is just stupid criminal. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it is funny. Uh, that thing, I think the guy originally listed it for like three grand cause that's what they normally sell for, but no one wanted to come pick up a 2,200 pound weirdly shaped piece of machinery. Right. And so it scared off enough people that he just kept on dropping the price lower and lower and lower until I swooped in. So your favorite, it. your favorite big piece of equipment now back to that. Oh, uh, definitely my big Baudry. Um, yeah. What's a Baudry? A Baudry is a mechanical power hammer. So a big, big forging hammer. So, uh, on a, on a good day, the hammers that we're swinging are three and a half. If you're going crazy, if you're four Neil Camamora, you're yeah, four and a half, yeah. uh, pound hammer. And that thing has a 490 pound Ram that travels up and down way faster than I How can How many swing. beats per minute? Uh, 200. Yeah. Yeah. So 500 pounds, 200 times per minute. Yeah. And each, each hit is 2,400 pounds of force at a, at a full hit. Yeah. Um, which is redonkulous. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what, so with those big hammers, they take a big foundation, right? Yeah. What did you have to do? Uh, or, or have you now just turned your entire shop floor into dust? Oh my gosh. I don't even want to talk about it. It was terrible. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah. So actually I don't even have this thing running yet. A bunch of the stuff that I have on, I, so I have the anvil on my trailer and then I have 1200 pounds of steel. That's all going towards, um, yeah, the motor tower that I have to build for that thing. That's um, what the steel is on your trailer right now. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've had this thing for six months and I, yeah, worked on it full time for a little while there. Um, but so the foundation for it, um, I cut a 50 inch wide by seven foot long 
slab out of my four, four inch thick, uh, concrete, um, and then busted that up. And then I dug 40 inches down into the hard rock. Yeah. Um, and then built a fat rebar cage, uh, dropped it in and then poured 17,000 pounds of concrete in there. (laughs) And actually this is not a dumb question. Is that actually going to be enough? Uh, yes. Okay. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like literally I think a lot of guys think that they're putting in a big enough foundation for some of that stuff, but, um, I went, I went wide enough and long enough that you have that inertial mass under there, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that is enough concrete for it, thankfully. Yeah. Which is, it's crazy. That's a ton. Yeah. If it, it's actually, it's actually several tons. Yeah. Eight tons. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. Uh, kids these <laughs> days. Uh, so what, when you say a motor tower, cause like the steel you have on the back of your trailer right now is pretty impressive amount of steel. Yeah. So it's a lot. Yeah, because um, the motor tower I built for my little 50-pound little giant weighs about 50 pounds. Yeah, that power hammer, how much does that thing weigh? My little giant? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I usually curl it in the mornings. Uh, it's, I think they're like what, 1,500 pounds? 1,500 pounds. Yeah. The motor for that hammer, for the for the big motory, is 450 pounds. The motor. So the yeah. motor weighs a third of what, the whole, of what your whole hammer yeah. weighs. And then it's got um, another couple hundred pounds of flywheels that need to go up above um, to, to power the thing. So your, your little giant um, has a motor that mounts directly above the clutch system on it. Um, and so it doesn't, doesn't need any external flywheels. But uh, the majority of mechanical power hammers were built to run off of a line shaft because mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, electric motors were super expensive, um, Steam engines were expensive. Everything was expensive, and they want and 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 the most expensive part was the actual thing that converted steam, electricity, wind, whatever, into a spinning motion. And so they would do a line shaft in their shop, which is basically one big uh, inch, inch and an eighth or so uh, rod that ran down the length of a shop, and it had a belt. And each there was uh, for each machine, there was a corresponding wheel on that shaft and a belt that ran from that wheel to the machine. Um, and the size of the wheel and the, on, on the line shaft and the size of the wheel on the machine controlled how fast it was going. And you can do a half twist in a belt to make it run the other direction and whatnot. And so a lot of these big industrial machines from the like 1880s up to like the 1920s when uh, electric, uh, 1930s really, I guess when electric motors became kind of more, more available um, are all designed to run off of slack belt. Um, and so uh, they won't have a place for a motor on them. They've just got uh, the need for a, yeah, a slack belt to run them. And a lot of those hammers back in those days, that that rod was actually driven, um, you know, by water, like out yeah. back. Yeah, um, water. A, a water wheel in a, yeah. in a stream. Yeah. So if you figure you can now turn what would be hundreds of, hundreds of horsepower of electric motors with no electricity. Yeah. It's and, in, it's ingenious. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's awesome. Yeah. A water, uh, steam, another, another big one kind of more in the, in the like city settings, I guess, where they didn't have like access to the water. Um, and even that was, was later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the whole, the whole like line shaft system is actually, I don't know if it was their intended benefit to have the amount of torque that it has, but the inertial mass of having, uh, 50 foot long, uh, shaft spinning with a dozen wheels on it is 
like you have a ridiculous amount of torque. Mm-hmm. And so one of the big, excuse me, one of the big issues that you have um, when you're building a motor tower, especially for a hammer like that, where you've got with the flywheel and the whole linkage system, you've got about 11 or 1200 pounds that needs to get going mm-hmm. um, when you step on the treadle is you don't have enough torque behind it. Uh, and so that's why the flywheels that I found, I think I'm going to have about six or 700 pounds of flywheels that are going to be spinning so that when you step down, there's enough inertial mass behind it to actually get that thing going and have it be responsive. You, you're going to have a good electric bill. Oh, you, you definitely should have bought a house with a creek out back. Awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh gosh. It really would be. Imagine how cool that would be if you went to a shop and it actually was running out of a creek. Like be, that'd be so cool. Yeah. There's, there's still a couple water powered hammers in, in Europe and whatnot um, where it's like, basically they're next to a creek. It's a basically a tree trunk with a big chunk of iron on one end um, that pivots on one end of the tree trunk and uh, hammers on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> They're it's super crazy. cool. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, so when I got my hammer, it actually didn't even have a motor on it. And kind of in a similar, a similar but different way, um, the last time my hammer had run, an old farmer had had it in Illinois. And they have a big clutch wheel on them where that belt, they used to run a big wide flat belt and uh, they would run off the PTO off their tractor. Yeah. So same kind of deal. The farmer maybe didn't have the electricity or whatever um, out at the, at the, at the farm where he was going to need to be making. So like the last time it was seen run, it was making plowshares with it. Yeah. And those farmers could pull up a tractor next to a piece of equipment like that and engage their PTO with a tractor running off of diesel or, yeah, I mean, it could have been steam, but most likely diesel. Yeah. Um, and that tractor can sit there and run with that PTO and he can forge, um, you know, whatever he needs for the farm, which is really like, again, like ingenious ways of, of, I mean, and I actually was showing the veterans this weekend. Uh, my hammer needs a little bit of tuning, so we didn't really use it, but I turned it on and just stomped on the pedal a couple times and, they got they got to see the force that, that just that little hammer that's just a 50 pound like that's not yours but still they had all done a bunch of hand hammering that day and then they saw that thing hit that twice yeah and they were like whoa oh it's it's stupid how much faster you can forge with a hammer yeah i mean it it opens up the capabilities so much i've been forging a lot of damascus on my 25 pound little giant and my 14 ton forging press and after a day of forging i was like man that would have been one heat with the big hammer. To, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To like, yeah. Forged. I think we did uh, like a 15 pound billet or something like that. And, you and can, I, and I have a really nice, you know, pretty nice forging setup with my press and rolling mill and, the, and they're impressive for what they are mm-hmm. and they're kind of top of the line for what they are. But you put a big hammer in there. Yeah. And he, like, uh, I, I call it, it's almost like a, like a 10 second car, you know, or you can go, you know, quarter mile in 10 seconds. Uh, yeah, I call them a one heat hammer where you can forge weld the billet of Damascus and draw it out and be ready to restack in one heat. Well, yeah. and it is, it is like having a, it is kind of, I'd, I'd equate it right now with that car theme to having like an old school American muscle car, totally. you know, that's 400 horsepower that can really run. And then all of a sudden you've got like this Tesla car that, you know, can go zero to 60 and a second and a half, two seconds. Yeah. And it's just, 
like the other the other car is still really cool and really useful and yeah. like top of the line for what it was but yeah. then this other thing is just a whole nother level oh yeah a, a bit a big hammer is not necessary but they are freaking cool they're they're cool and they're so useful yeah you can i mean yeah and in a production setting um they really are necessary because you you start equating um you know dollars per hour that you're making mm-hmm. uh, if you're cranking out 30 or 40 50% more steel every single day out of your shop like at the end of the year you know and and every time that you put that seal back in the forge you have to wait for it to heat up yeah and that's just time you're sitting there wasting then you're wasting propane or get ga- you know whatever gas that you're using and uh if you can literally forge out a bar in one two heats and be done versus 6 8 10 12 heats yeah wow yeah it's, it's a game changer it's, it's yeah and and added benefit it's really fun yeah it takes your compensation game to a whole nother level oh exactly yeah yeah I, uh, <laughs> yeah no it definitely does yeah it's, it's pretty it's, cool it's pretty sweet um it's it, like it's cool it's cool too that like i sound old when i say this but like it is okay cool. josh you sound old all the time and i look old i mean <laughs> see my gray hair um it's as an older knife maker now and dealing with you young guys it's tough on me uh <laughs> so man you made me lose my train of thought what's cool about seeing somebody young like you come along is the fact that like there's not a lot of people that actually give a shit about this kind of stuff anymore or care about some of these old pieces of equipment and like just my surface grinder like everybody that walks in thinks that thing's super cool and especially when they find out it was like made in the 30s you know and yeah um the same goes for like that bandsaw you've got and lathe and, and your hammer um, and I think it makes some of these old guys super, uh, you know, super happy. A guy like Schwarzer mm-hmm. that somebody your age that is going to be around a long time after, I don't know if Steve will actually ever, you know, pass away. Like he is probably not. He is. Laura's been trying for years. And he's just, yeah. Yeah. I know. No, she, he, <laughs> he, he's incredible. He is. Um, yeah. I, I had him on my podcast. If you, if you don't, if you haven't heard of Steve Schwarzer, um, go back and listen to my podcast with him. Listen to the energy that guy has. What is he like? Seventy eight now. He just turned seventy four in seventy four July. Yeah, um, but July he's 23rd. he's a machine. Like he's a going machine. Yeah, he's he is absolutely amazing. He where I've I've been down to visit him. I think three times now in the last year and a half. Um, and he he just came up and visited Montana for like. A week and a half, and he he wears me out. Yeah, <laughs> time, it's amazing. But it's cool because he's a you know seventy four year old guy that travels to Montana to hang out with a twenty two year old. Yeah, and he does it because like he's that excited. Yeah, and I think it's definitely cool to him that he can he is trying to offload as much information into people. Yeah, as he can because he he's the one that talks about like I'm not gonna be around forever. And yeah. There's not very many 74-year-olds with 25,000 Instagram followers who doesn't have anyone managing it for him. Yeah. He he's doing that all by himself and it is awesome. Yeah. And he's yeah, he's still he's teaching a ton of classes. He is he is offloading a ton of information. Yeah. And every time I talk to him and every time I hang out with him, I hear new stories, which is yeah. crazy. That guy has lived like five lifetimes. Oh, worth it's of insane. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, and He's not just offloading information, but what's cool about him is he's actually also 
like constantly trying to learn, oh, like trying yeah. to learn from you, trying to learn from anyone he's around. Like he's the kind of guy that like, even though he's 74 and you're 22, like he's trying to learn from you. Totally. Which is uh, inspirational and, uh, you know, quite an example for all of us to follow. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. He, he hasn't stopped learning for the last 70 years. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Yeah, He's incredible. Uh, so, which is why he's so good at so many different things. I mean, I was 14, 15 years old going to hammer-ins at Shane Taylor's and Rick Dunkerley's and whatnot, and and Steve was one of those guys, and we're talking back in the mid-'90s, and he was one of those guys coming up then, offloading information and teaching. Yeah. And literally 30 years later, like, he still... And I actually honestly think he has more energy now than then. Like, he was cool and had a lot of energy then, but... yeah. Um. He was yeah. in his forties then. He had already been making knives at that point for longer than I've been alive now. Yeah, yeah. Back then, yeah, yeah. Because he, yeah, same here. Like, because he started as a kid. Yeah, he, yeah, he went. He's made knives now for what sixty years. Uh, he started making knives full time. I think he started actually making knives in the sixties. Um, I want to say the late sixties. Okay, um, and I think he went full time in eighty one. Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought he was messing around with it when he was even younger, but he I think he made a couple knives as a kid, and then he started making knives again. That's right in his early twenties, I think. Yeah, and then he went full time in sixty or sorry eighty eighty one, and he was born in forty seven. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So, so what is it? I mean, what's the goal going forward now? What's your now? You're kind of. I mean, I wouldn't say you're fully set up now, right? I mean, you're still kind of in the process of trying to probably about two. I mean, you're never there. you're never actually going to ever get there. Yeah, but you're getting much closer to having what you'd probably consider a shop that you can kind of do your thing in. Pretty much, yeah. So the yeah the goal from here on out is next goal is get the big hammer running because it's been sitting there looking all pretty for the last I don't know couple months now. Um, but after that, I kind of want to branch out from knives and kind of use those skills to build. Uh, the goal is to build the world's nicest version of weird everyday items for YouTube. And so I'll still get to use my knife making skills, but also just get to have a blast and have some, have, have fun building weird stuff that should never be built. Um, yeah. Along with, you know, doing a lot of knives in there as well, but I want to, yeah, kind of challenge myself uh, and, and do some other weird stuff. I, I, I made a pizza cutter, uh, last year, and that would just like turned on a light bulb in my brain, and I was like, I got to do more of this because right. this is a blast. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Oh, super super fun. Um, you're also pretty heavy into the into the shooting, mm-hmm. um, pistol shooting. I like to make fun of Will because uh, my wife and I, I don't know, actually, you probably don't know. We make fun of you in <laughs> our house <laughs> all by me. ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I cried a little um, bit. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but Will likes to. Uh, post Instagram videos of himself quick drawing and uh, we like to make fun of him for his quick draw. And then my (laughs) wife, my wife likes to imitate Will uh, with her quick draw, which is funny because now she's wanting to start to learn how to shoot. So when she starts to practice at home, the tables can turn. There we go. Um, (laughs) The guy actually, I met him in big sky that uh, runs your, what's that? Chris Forrest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of runs your range right and yep. help get you going or yep yeah. taught, taught you to shoot and yeah he's a super cool guy he's awesome yeah chris is a retired seal um and yeah just a just a great dude but yeah so i 
started getting into, I, I kind of grew up shooting uh, and whatnot. Not that there's a whole lot of that in the Seattle area, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Probably hard to believe. Everyone over there just loves guns. You just weren't hanging out in so the right much. part. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I did thankfully grow up shooting. Um, at least I probably, actually, I, I shouldn't say that. Um, I started shooting probably when I was about 10 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, when I was 18, I think I decided that I kind of wanted to get a little bit more serious about it and maybe start concealed carrying and, and see what that kind of meant. And it was just all downhill from there. Yeah. Uh, I took, I took a class, uh, Concealed carry, you just stuff a gun in your pocket, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. A little gun, always. If your gun can't fit in the palm of your hand, it doesn't it doesn't work. Easy now. Yeah. Yeah. Just just pulling off my concealed carry rig. He's pulling his is, pulling his gun out right now. This was a gun free zone, by the way. Ah. Uh, all the guns here are free. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um yeah. So uh yeah, I took a class about that and I, I kind of realized that there's oh, sorry. <laughs> Get up on that mic. There we go. Right. You sound way sexier up there. Thank you. Yeah, we're still trying to... Well, I guess you have a girlfriend now. We're not trying to find you one anymore. We're <laughs> trying to keep her. Uh, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I uh, yeah, I took a class there, and I kind of realized that it was a little bit more serious um, than just stuffing a gun in your pocket, which I think is kind of the American culture around guns. Um, but the simple fact of the matter is that most people, and this is going to offend some people, and if you're offended by it, it probably applies to you. Most people kind of suck at shooting. Um, I find that offensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, the thing is, I so um, yeah. From there, I yeah, I got my concealed weapons permit, and I took uh, as many classes as I could, and then I started, you know, shooting a couple times a week, and then I started instructing at that school, um, and it's just been yeah, I've I've gotten pretty pretty deep into that whole community, and uh, just try to be as as good at it. As I possibly can be. Um, well, it's cool because there's and there's actually kind of an a uh, you know, um, you know, uh, re- a surge, I guess, in people who who actually are putting more um, weight and and more finding more importance on being prepared. And I think in the last totally. year, like we've seen uh, what, and you can you can be prepared in a lot of different ways, whether it's just knowledge. Um, yeah, maybe the kind of vehicle you have, maybe the food that you have in your home, mm-hmm. um, your knowledge of, of medical uh, things like putting a tourniquet on or whatever, and also being prepared with, you know, with weapons and knowing how to use them. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I don't know, we can make fun of you for doing some of the stuff that you do, but in the end, we're just joking around, but it's actually, you can't be really, I don't think you can really be too over-prepared. I would agree with that. I mean, and, and to, obviously, to certain, obviously like there's li- like, you don't want to live your life in fear. Right. And obviously we, we've, we've heard about the people or seen the people are kind of nutty and mm-hmm. you know, everyone likes to throw the word prepper around. I mean, I envision there's a difference between being a prepper and being, being prepared. Totally. Uh, and I've, I've seen is, some preppers before and they are definitely weird. Yeah. Um, but being prepared is like that. You know, for example, with the whole COVID thing and the mask shortage and whatnot that happened initially, like let's just say COVID really did kill eighty percent of the people that it came in contact with, or twenty percent. Um, I and you couldn't go get a, an actual what I consider high quality mask. You know, a, yeah. a, a, an actual you know three M 
certified mask with yeah. canisters, you yeah. know. Uh, you know, so I went and bought those and I put them in my storeroom. Does that make me a prepper? I don't know. Pretty much it does. Maybe. You should maybe take that tinfoil hat off your head. It might interfere with the audio here. Well, <laughs> I carry that around because I can always craft it into a shank and stab you. <laughs> if you fold it enough times, it gets hard. Uh, the the tinfoil hat. Um, so, but I mean, but as far as that goes, like, um, even even in our town here, years and years ago, down just kind of downwind from us here or upwind from us, uh, a train derailed carrying chlorine gas. Oh, that's and fun. they had to evacuate a pretty big area, really big. And where I live in particular, the train tracks are the north of me, and there's only really one way to drive out of here. Which if there's a if there's a train rolled over, literally right across from my driveway, where I have to get on a highway to go left or right. Um, what if we all need to be wearing, uh, you know, a mask, not a full on gas mask, but a, you know, a mask that could possibly protect your family or in your lungs or whatever. Or what if, you know, the next variant of COVID actually does kill people. Yeah. Lots of people. Not that this one doesn't kill people, but yeah, you know, so there's that kind of being prepared. And then there's the, you know, I've heard Joe Rogan talk about on his podcast where a bunch of his anti-gun friends are all of a sudden calling him in the middle of a pandemic going, how do I buy a gun? And it's like, well, you can you can own a gun, but knowing how to use a gun is way yeah. different. There's I, I think that the personal level of responsibility that comes along with carrying a gun with you is often very downplayed, especially in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of realized that, and I didn't want to be that guy. I had a lot of people in classes at that school that uh, had carried a gun for a long time, and they couldn't hit uh, a silhouette um at 20 yards away with their with the with the pistol that they carried well and and i can speak for uh i'm I'm becoming a little bit better shooter but i'm definitely not where i should be um uh but what i can say about that is is a lot of us do grow up with guns Mm -hmm. and we start shooting when we're kids and we shoot bb guns and we shoot whatever dad's pistols and we hunt and whatever and, and we can shoot and hit targets and stuff with our rifles but uh that doesn't mean that we actually learn to properly shoot and hold a pistol. And, totally. you know, I've been lucky to kind of get in with a cool crowd of people. Um, some of these military vets and whatnot who have come here and I've been like, Hey, show me how to shoot a pistol correctly. And I mean, right from the start when they grab it and they put your hands on the gun, you can tell when they get you all positioned and you're there, you're like, okay, this feels weird. Yeah. Like, clearly I've been doing this wrong. Totally. Yeah. And, and then, and then even so like, yeah, even from that point, then can then learning how to do that quickly and doing that right. from different positions and like and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it is it is definitely it feels super unnatural, mm-hmm. uh, like right off the bat. And like yeah, shooting a rifle is wicked easy, but shooting a pistol is not not all that easy. Honestly, it feels yeah weird and unnatural. Um, and you're never, I shouldn't say never. Ninety nine point nine nine percent of people aren't going to grab a pistol for the first time and 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 hold it correctly right off the bat. I look back at photos of me uh, holding a pistol or shooting a pistol during high school, and I'm like, "Right, what the hell am I doing? Want to go yeah. back and smack myself?" Bellingham gangster, exactly. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. So I, I I started started shooting pistols, and then from there, um, after I had a couple loaded guns negligently pointed at me in uh, some of the classes that I was teaching. Um, I went and got my EMT certification as well, um, which was a three-month-long, super fun class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've kind of kind of been dabbling on the edge. I'm not 
uh, a prepper, but I do want to be prepared and, and, and because I, I want to be able to protect and preserve life and be uh, yeah, a good, good citizen because I yeah think that life is valuable. So. Well, and the field craft survival people and whatnot that we've been kind of talking to and dealing with and, and, you know, some of the things that one of the things that like Mike Glover said that really kind of resonate. No, actually it wasn't Mike. It was uh, one of the medics at one of the uh, winter strong events I went to said with a tourniquet, for example, um, if you have a car accident and your kid has an artery severed in his leg from a piece of glass and he's bleeding out or she's bleeding out. And all you have to do is grab a, you know, a $20 tourniquet or whatever it costs and apply it on their leg and, and save their life. Like, would that be worth having in the, in your backseat of your car, you know, in your seat pocket or whatever, in your glove box? Um, I'm not necessarily saying that everybody wants to carry tourniquet, you know, in the fanny pack or on their pant leg or whatever, like for the people that do that, that's cool. And it's nice that people walk around that prepared, but at least having, um, you know, we now have some medical kits. I put one in my daughter's car, uh, some blood clotting gauze and Mm -hmm. a wrap and a tourniquet. Yeah. And then from then on, I I would, I would, you know, hope that someone's going to be able to show up soon enough to take care of things from there. But if, if it just means life-saving type stuff, uh, to gain maybe a 30 minutes that they need to get you to a hospital, that might be all it takes. Totally. Know? Yeah. That's, that is, that is all super, super important stuff. Yeah. The, yeah. Tourniquet, chest seal and mm-hmm. wound packing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And you know, the one thing that's kind of a bummer is some of these classes, so there's some free classes, but like a lot of the pistol classes, right? It costs money and it's fairly expensive to shoot ammo. Yeah. It's fairly expensive to go take a class from someone and so I know a lot of people like me don't do it. And really, it would actually be nice if the anti-gun crowd would actually, or the government itself, especially the anti-government or gun government people, would actually, like, that would be an actual good thing to subsidize. Would be... For real. Not the buying of guns, maybe, but the training of people who have guns of how to use them properly. Totally. Even even police officers. Like, imagine imagine if if they said, for the next six months, all gun classes uh from certified instructors are going to be free and i can guarantee you first of all you wouldn't even be able to find a spot in a class because they would all be full because there's a lot of people that know they're not good at it but they don't want to spend 500 bucks to go take a class Mm -hmm. Um, but they would go take it which would then in turn you would have a lot of people much more prepared and much safer totally 100 percent. yeah a lot of the a lot of the issues that we see with gun violence come from or yeah come from not people not knowing knowing what they're doing right honestly, uh which is which is sad and too bad yeah um, yeah it is it is awfully frustrating um that the the amount of like negligent um like yeah deaths and injuries that we have from guns just from people who are yeah too comfortable around them while actually not knowing what's going on is frustrating sure yeah so where where are you are you uh are you traveling to knife shows like now that we're kind of you know we seem to be having shows coming back uh, obviously we've had some knife shows this year blade show and whatnot blade west this fall yeah are there shows that you're going to be going to that people can like find you at uh are so, you preparing for any of them um i haven't i've, I've only ever had a table at one show mm-hmm. um i had a table at the eugene show 2017 and i split that with salem mm-hmm. um 
yeah, so I'll be at Blade Show next year. I don't know if I'm going to be at Blade Show West yet. Um, I don't really like going to California. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if it was somewhere else, I would probably go to it, but I don't think I'm going to go because it's in California. Um, and I'll, and also, it's a, just a busy busy season for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll be at Blade Show next year. I'm going to be testing for Journeyman Smith, hopefully. Oh, really? Um, so I'll have a table also. Um, yeah. That's cool. I'm pretty excited, yeah. Hopefully we'll um, be able to make it this year, next year. Yeah, that's uh. So you'll be testing next June then. Yeah, you're hoping. Mm-hmm. Have you done your performance test yet? No, that was something I had to ask you about. Maybe I can come over and performance test. Oh yeah, yeah. That would be awesome. I'd be honored. Sweet. Thank breaking you. news. <laughs> I need. I need a breaking news. Uh, um, I don't know what all these little buttons do. Oh, that's crickets. <laughs> I need a breaking news. Uh, but that, yeah, that would be, I would be honored to, uh, what, uh, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but do you have any idea what steel you want to make your blade out of? I don't do a whole lot of choppers, uh, probably ADCR V2. Um, mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of the go-to steel nowadays, uh, which I don't know if you've played around with it very much, but it's, Pretty freaking killer stuff. Yeah, just a little bit, but not enough to actually feel like I have like a grasp or experience. I have some out actually on the shelf right now. Yeah, it's like I think it's actually hard to get right now. Yeah, it's but it's pretty much it's pretty much uh, kind of re- I would say almost replacing fifty one sixty um for the most part in the that kind of realm of mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a super abusable steel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's actually kind of going to be one of the fun parts about testing for that at least in my mind it would be fun would be uh, embracing that whole like learning experience of like taking a month and just building choppers and testing them and destroying them totally and that'll be fun to show on youtube too yeah uh so i'll probably play around with a couple different steels and have chopper chopper month yeah Yeah. you know (laughs) there we go like december is chopper month yeah And, and uh yeah. And, and, then, and what's cool is the ones that you don't bend and break. I mean, you can chop the hell out of stuff and then sharpen them up and, and still sell them. And totally people would love that. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be a blast. I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing, I, I, I knew I was probably going to do at least three. Um, and you're going to do like a, what a 12 inch blade. Uh, I need to look at the parameters, but yeah, <laughs> I haven't designed it yet. Haven't done I was anything. testing you. Is it a 10 inch blade? It is. Uh, I was trying to get you. <laughs> oh man yeah you'd so, show up here with a 12 inch blade and we'd have to chop saw off the last two inches <laughs> oh. why did you make your blade with no tip bad uh <laughs> bad guidance i guess yeah i would have to touch up on the parameters myself just to make sure nothing's changed like um you know i'm pretty sure i know most of that i think it's no wider than two inches no longer than 10 for a blade and i think it's 15 inches overall that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think, you know, for people that don't know some of these things, you, you, you chop a one inch free swinging rope and you have to chop it in one chop. So this is the, uh, the, the journeyman performance. Test. Yeah. There's, there's two, two sides of that test. Yep. Um, and then chop two, two by fours in half and still have it shave, which shouldn't be, those two things really shouldn't be any problem. It'd be really easy on me. Cause I don't have very aggressive arm hair anyway. So, yeah, we might have to uh, we might have to bring in a lot hairier, like wiry, I'll, hairy I'll man. I'll bring my dog. Some some logger come in here with with uh, 
He's actually got like uh, like cable fibers for arm hair. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and then uh, and then you have to bend that blade in the vise. You have to put a third of the blade in the vise. So you kind of measure the measure the blade, figure out the math of exactly where a third is, make a mark. And again, I would run through all the uh, the exacts on that stuff. But that's kind of how I think it was when I did it. Totally. Yeah. Only been twenty years ago. But uh, 25, jeez. Did you test yeah. it at Blade Show? Um, I was 15, so it was 25 years ago. Oh, my goodness. I, I did my performance part at Wayne Goddard's. Wow. Um, At the or- Eugene, Oregon show. That's cool. So I was I was 14 when I was there, and then I turned 15 between then and the in the Eugene show, but I was, I was kind of a, you know, kind of a weak kid. You know, my blade didn't have looking back on it, the best edge geometry. I struggled to chop the rope in half, um, a little bit just with like being weak or whatever. But, uh, um, you know, it was kind of interesting time and like looking back on it and whatnot, but the blade did all the, all the performance stuff that it had to do chopping the rope and the two by fours and all that. Um, it was definitely a learning experience and looking back on it, um, you know, it's interesting looking back on the, like the grinders and the equipment I was working on. And, um, what did you, know, you have for a shop back then? I had just a grizzly grinder. Oh my. Um, they still make that. I know, which is crazy. Yeah. It really is crazy. But for like 550 bucks or whatever they are. That's... Grinder and a buffer. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it really is like the best deal out there for somebody that just wants to try and get going but doesn't want to spend a bunch of money. Yeah. I hate to say it. I mean, it's kind of import shit, but. Yeah. But it is it is a way to start for sure. Um, yeah, I didn't have much. I mean, I had an enclosed lean-to in my in my dad's um, little machine shed, grizzly grinder, um, my dad's torch for heat treating. I, was, I remember heat treating my blades in a pan of oil out in front of my dad's shop. Uh, not near enough oil, so my little pan of oil get hot on a big blade fast and catch on fire. And then I was trying to figure out how to put fires out in front of my dad's shop, my little oil fires I had. Um, yeah, I didn't have really much for equipment. I mean, I had a forge. Um, I had a horizontal forge that was kind of a Wayne Goddard design. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they called them Dragon's Breath Forges back then, huh. um, if I'm not mistaken. And then, uh, yeah, my grandpa's anvil on a stump that my dad buried in the ground so that's awesome yeah not much um yeah that thing had a duct tape handle on it i wish looking back on it now like wish it would actually like finish like a nice handle but i was just trying to pass the test i mean the thing gets bent in half right but i do i do respect the people who do put more time into it. like uh jordan lamothe i think he hand sanded his yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I was doing it today, knowing what I know and whatever, like I would definitely that last one, like obviously the ones you test in your shop and whatnot, you're not going to be putting handles on those. Like you're just going to be sticking a pipe on them and trying to bend them and see how they do. But yeah, like it is going to be something that when you're, you're 60 and you're looking back on, like it would be nice if that thing looked like a nice finished knife. Yeah. And if you do the heat treat right, it'll actually come a long ways back towards straight. Yeah. Um, And it's impressive when you see, I mean, it doesn't, we know now with the techniques that we have compared to back then when I was doing stuff, like it took forever for me at 15, 14 years old to hand sand a blade. Yeah. Were you heat treating out of a forge at that point too? No, uh, just a, just a oxygen acetylene tank and a magnet. Dang. Yep. So, um, 
Yeah, and then just my baking them in my mom's oven in the house. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my so mom it, always hated that. I know. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you don't like clean it off real well, and you get the smell of that oil burning in the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, it would be cool. Like, uh, uh, you know, you know, a nice little handle on it, and and a finished blade that looks looks nice because it's like, really, you're doing this test like. In my opinion, these days, and you can speak for yourself, but passing the journeyman test isn't going to change your life at all, and it's not going to make or break your business. Like you don't have to do it. I actually respect anybody a lot, especially someone who has a following like you do that even wants to put themselves out there because you really don't have much to gain. Like I'm sure you're going to make some YouTube videos and document it, and and you know you'll gain some stuff and whatnot from that, like some business and some following, and it'll be cool. But you could do that with any other video you make. Yeah. Um, not, there's nobody really out there that's just going to be like, you know, I've been wanting Will's knives, but he wasn't a journeyman. So now I'm going to buy one. Met a lady like that at Blade Show this year, actually. You did? Yeah. <laughs> She's, and there, there are, actually, she said Master Smith, but. Yeah. Well, but back, back when I passed him, there were a lot more people that actually did collect, like, as soon as you passed, they collected Master Smith's knives or journeyman Smith's knives. Yeah. Um, but really, these days, that's not much of a thing. Yeah. But it's more of a personal journey. That's exact, and that's that's exactly the reason why I'm doing it because, I yeah, it it really honestly probably won't affect my market at all. It won't make any, won't really make my knives uh, a whole lot more sellable. But it will, yeah. It 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 I need, I want to prove to myself that I can actually do it. Right, and it's yeah. kind of one of those things like, um, you can say that. I can do that or like the people, you know, that's one thing I say about forge and fire. There's people like, oh, I could win that show. It wouldn't be any problem. Like, well then go do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like go do it because you don't know, especially in like the forge and fire thing. Like they can throw stuff at you. You just don't know. Like with the journeyman test, you know exactly totally what's coming. Uh, what you don't know though is how you're going to be judged. Mm-hmm. Um, you can think that, you know, and you can do your very best. Um, but you still have to make five really damn nice knives. Yeah. And you're still putting your fate and your ego and and your all that stuff in the hands of someone else. Yeah. I uh I've been thinking about a lot what I want to do for my journeyman set. And for the most part, I feel like ninety five percent of the journeyman sets that I see look like the exact same journeyman set. And I don't want to do that, which is going yeah. to be... So I, I do want to challenge myself a little bit there because I, I know I can build five clean knives. Right. The minimum standard. Exactly. Do that. Yeah. But I want to I want to be a little bit risque with it, I think. Yeah. Um, five miniatures. Ex- yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Or four miniatures and a spatula. Yes. With a cutting edge on it. I wonder if... I wonder if that would count. I wonder if a pizza cutter would count. I think you would flunk. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, I'm pretty sure. I <laughs> yeah. can tell you that for sure. <laughs> I was I was talking to Mike Quesenberry about it. I was like, do you think it's worth like putting yourself out there a little bit? And he goes, they told me two things. Don't do an integral. Don't do anything with stag on it. So I made four other knives and I made a stag handled integral. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, there. there has been, I don't know. I haven't been to the Blade Show in a while. So like, there's definitely been that in the past and you don't know who's going to be judging you and that the, the judging 
um, you know, can change year to year based on who's standing in there. But um, there's been some kind of stupid things at times where it's like, you know, they don't want you to like presenting stuff that's like too different and whatnot. Um, you know, like, like the thing with the stag or whatever, if they're wanting to see if something's symmetrical, well, a piece of stag isn't going to be symmetrical most likely. I mean, you know, it depends on the piece and how you work it. But, um, you know, there's just certain things that like, there, there's just been little things like that, but really in the end, what you can't deny is quality. Yeah. So if you go in there, I don't care what you take, if as long as it's a knife and has a cutting edge and falls in the parameters of the basic basics, um, if it's rocking cool ass shit, you're gonna pass. Yeah, with clean fit and finish. Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> like, and that's the thing. Like you, you can look on the internet, and that's what's cool about knife shows. Like, you can look at the internet and see some knives and see some pictures of some knives and be like man, that guy's good. Those those are super cool. And then pick him up at a knife show and be like, that is a piece of shit. Yeah. Like, you could drive a semi through the guard. The blade's crooked. Yeah. Um, the handle fit is crappy. Yeah. Um, the blade's heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the advantage, even as a collector, of going in person to a show yeah. and maybe finding your people and then maybe buying, you know, knives online after that. But, like, definitely yeah. go handle knives. That, I... I'm a obviously pretty social and outgoing person, and I love knife shows for that reason. I'm not a collector, mm-hmm. but knife makers are just the coolest people. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do I feel like you meet a knife maker who's not who's like good at what they do, who's not really good or like very accomplished in some other area as well. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know any boring knife makers. I don't think Shane. Ah, uh, yep. Shane Sorry. Taylor. I know one really boring knife maker. Yeah. And the rest are awesome. <laughs> uh, Shane, the guy who has dragons flying around in his shop. Yeah. Pet dragons. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. I actually got bit by one. Um, yeah, it happens. Yeah. They're one aggressive. The, one of the ones he bred, actually. Yeah. yeah. But actually, not a dragon, but one of his dogs. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It bit you? <laughs> a couple times. It was all right. Yeah. It's like this big. That's funny. Yeah. Actually, it's probably Doc's mom. No, he's not related to them. Oh, is he not? No. Oh, that's Sky. Just yeah, kidding. Rick's dog. Rick's dog. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, my dog is funny. It was kind of the same time frame, but they're from local breeders here. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, our anyway, little dog. The knife making community as a whole is super friendly. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. And going to knife shows and hanging out and getting to meet the makers is just awesome. That's what I was telling some of the veterans this weekend that were at our shop for that event was. Um, I'm sure they don't all have the exact same political views, but when you get in a shop and you're forging and you're doing all that stuff, like none of that matters. Like doesn't matter what this person thinks about this or that or Afghanistan or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you're, when you're forging and you're making knives and you're doing that kind of stuff, it's, you're all in like for the same goal and, totally. and you're all doing the same stuff. And, and, uh, um, I told them like, that's what was really cool over the years about doing hammer ins is I know we had, you know, liberals and we had conservatives and we had, you know, gay people and straight people. And like, we had way, we had some really different walks of life. I mean, Mm -hmm. some people that would come in, you know, I would say in general, a lot of the knife makers were similar and thought a lot of similar things, but then you'd have guys walk in that were like clearly different. Yeah. Um, and like, we're just welcomed 
mm-hmm. like sucked right into the group and had a blast. And um, I would say, like you know, to your point, the the overall knife making community, at least in my experience, has always been just super welcoming. Mm-hmm. It's it's unbelievable. I've spent a lot of the way that we met. I think the first time we actually ever met, I spent the night at your place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, was, that's true. I think I was driving back from Spokane or something like that, and it was yep. like, I stopped in at like 8 o'clock, and you're like, well, why don't you just spend the night and get more sleep that way? And we ended up talking for like six, right. six hours anyway, and yeah. I think I got less sleep than I probably would Yeah, have. it's true. But at least I didn't, yeah, drive while I was tired. And, yeah, it's been, yeah, kind of that same way. Well, it's like competing on Forge and Fire when I competed against Mareko, mm-hmm. you know, and we became friends. I mean, yeah. I still hate him for winning. Yeah. I was robbed. Yeah. Not really, actually, in that one, but <laughs> I don't want him to, you know, I, I can't admit that I lost. No. So I, w- I was obviously screwed. Uh, but, no, like, we became friends from that, you know, yeah. and he's, you know, stopped by and stayed and um, got other stuff happening that we'll be announcing later down the road. Uh, but we're like, you know, we, we became friends through that whole process. Totally. You know, and I think that's really more often than not the case on like that forge and fire show and mm-hmm. um hammer ins and knife shows and whatever it's really cool and like with this veterans event at the end of the weekend I mean, we had people come in that were quite standoffish in the beginning and yeah. nervous uncomfortable not sure what it was all about and everybody yesterday when they were leaving and, and this morning um because we just did that this weekend uh we're all exchanging numbers hugging um saying love you brother and and like you know looking forward to talking to each other and that's what we were actually encouraging was like don't just let this feeling of this fun weekend die right here yeah like if it's going to be effective you know uh reach out to each other and check on each other see how they're doing you know and um and those people all also know that like if they call me in the middle of the night or they call any of those other guys and need somebody to talk to we're there you know and that's kind of the whole the whole point yeah, you know. absolutely. So, yeah, yeah the knife community is really cool. It's one of the only communities where, like, you're best friends with your competition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's true. It's pretty amazing. It's true. Yeah. Um. So, anything else that we need to cover or that you're, uh, any any exciting news or any any particular projects you're working on that, like, are coming up? we need to be paying attention for apart from some stuff that I'm doing with uh, the warrior poets side of YouTube channel. It'll be coming out soon oh, yeah? or there, or I guess on their private subscription network, uh, WPSN. That's uh, kind of one of the things that I'm working on right now. That's not going on YouTube, not, not really going on Instagram. Yeah. Um, yeah. Doing a, a show with them called heavy metal kitchen where I oh. make something in my shop and then we take it to Atlanta and got a, a chef there. Who's just awesome. Um, and, that's yeah. cool. Using using it and yeah, just having a good time with that. <laughs> yeah. So so what what is your like YouTube channels and your Instagrams and give us all that good stuff. Yeah. So it's all just Will Stelter. So my YouTube channel is Will Stelter. My Instagram is Will underscore Stelter. It's it's pretty boring. But Very creative. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, here. Okay. Actually, Steve and I have had quite a few conversations about this. It's better in my opinion and in Steve's opinion to just go by your name than to go by some random name that no one knows what the, you know, I don't, I don't even. So I will, I will agree. Yellow pine forge or whatever. Yeah. 
so we I act we actually discussed this this weekend. It's funny that came up. So, and I and I think it was pretty sure it was Rick Dunkerley when I was like, I was becoming like my little knife making hobby was turning into a business. And I was like fourteen, right? And I'm making business cards, and I'm going to go to the Eugene Oregon Knife Show, and like, what am I going to name my my business? You know, and uh, and I'm pretty sure it was Rick. I don't know. It might have actually been somebody else because Rick didn't even, I think it was Rick, but he had kind of regretted it at the time because his business name at that time was Baldy Mountain Forge. But then he had, you know, he was living right under the shadow of Baldy Mountain. And then next thing you know, he's living in Sealy Lake, which is 50 miles from Baldy Mountain. And I remember him telling me, um, I'm sure it was him, uh, name your business after yourself. Yeah. And people are buying you. Yeah. And, that's never going to change and you don't know where your company's going to go and your your mm-hmm. name is going to go. And when you think about famous, you know, Randall, yeah. you know, Bill Moran, mm-hmm. right? Like these famous names, you know, Ken Onion. Yeah. Like there are some companies out there, you know, Case Knives and whatnot, but that was still a name mm-hmm. like at some point. Um, you know, yes, there's the, I, I think it's a little different in the production world, and that's actually why I named my my business something different because I didn't want my production company too attached to me. Yeah. Where down the road, if it ever got to the point that you had to sell it or, you know, you go to retire and the kids aren't interested in it and, and some other company wants to buy it. Yeah. You know, you're buying Josh Smith knives, right? Yeah. Um, but I think you're smart to definitely name, especially the stuff you're making with your hands. And that was yeah. the thing with mine. Like, so if I would have just made all my production knives under my name, well now it's confusing. Like, okay, well did, did you make that or did your employees make that? Totally. Yeah. My, uh, my first business name was Clyde Hill knives named after the hill that I grew up on. Mm-hmm. And then it was Stelter Edgeworks, And then it was Will Stelter as far as Instagram titles go. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then I, yeah. My wife last week at the fair in Missoula was walking down the um, kind of fence line inside the fairgrounds, but there's a kind of a main street right there, and she's walking along, and somebody pulls up on the road and yells, are you Jesse Smith, knife wife? And she's like, what? <laughs> and she's like, you know, and that's how he knew her, and we talked about that with at Black Rifle Coffee, and I was down there like, it's kind of strange when like, that friend of mine, Mandy, you know, her Instagram is mother of dragons. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually did it. Like I recognized her, but I didn't actually know her name. And I was like, I hate to do this, but I, are you mother of dragons? <laughs> like, no, I'm Mandy, you know, but it's weird. Like, you know what? Not everyone can get their name. I, when was the last time you went to a knife show? Uh, it's been a while, several years. Get ready for a whole lot of that at the next knife show you go to. Really? It's unbelievable. Yeah. So, so much of that. The guys who named their businesses off of, you know, not, not their, not their name. And they, and they go around the whole show. They're like yellow pine forge. Yep. Black cup. Right. Edgeworks or whatever. Yeah. And they just have to say that the whole time because though they can be pretty well known, but you know, well, I wouldn't expect a lot of the people that are following Montana Knife Company that found us through just some other way other than my page. Yeah. I wouldn't expect them to know me, or they yeah. might even recognize me on one of the Montana Knife Company posts. But they'd be like, "Hey, Montana Knife Company, but who are you?" Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, no, that's super, uh, it's super interesting, but I think that's really good advice, especially with custom stuff. Like yeah. keep your, keep your name for your, if you're building with your own two hands and selling a part of your, your life with it. Yeah. And people, let's face it, a lot of the people that are buying Will Stelter stuff, it's not because your knives are any good. No, they probably <laughs> can't read anyway, so it doesn't really matter it's what true. you name your company. But they do relate to you. Like, they like you, right? So, I mean, yes, your knives are good, and they like your knives, but they also are buying you. Totally. They're buying the person. That's, that's yeah, that's the other thing, is having your having your name on your knife is super important if, yeah. if, you're, if you're selling a handmade piece. Um, What's also interesting is if you look at it from the standpoint of in the in the, in the future. Um, I always say like, we're making future artifacts. Mm -hmm. Um, literally, uh, that, you know, pizza cutter or a a knife that I made or a sword or, or something that a chef's knife that Morocco makes could literally be in a museum in a thousand years. Yeah. And they're going to look back and, you know, in my mind, I would like them to be like, man, some dude named Josh Smith built that. Yeah. Or Will Stelter. But like, you know, iron stone knife works like, okay, well, who was that? What was that? It's hard to research. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. For that level stuff, you know, it's, it's, uh, the custom custom stuff. I, I do. I agree. It should be your name. Yeah. I think that's, and it's easy to Google mm-hmm. the whole nine yards. Yep. Yep. It makes it, it makes a big difference, honestly. So Will Seltzer. Will Seltzer. That's right. Or Stetler. If you're, <laughs> 80% of the people who pronounce my last name. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Stelter, S-T-E-L-T-E-R. That's it. Okay. Well, thank you. Do you have a website? Uh, did you, yeah. Did Will, you say Will, it? WillStelterBladesmith.com. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. Honestly, it's uh, it's an honor, um, you know, and it's cool to see you know, kind of your transition here in the knife, in the knife world. And you're, and you're doing a super cool job of like switching gears from what you've been doing. And if you're anything like a lot of us, you're, you'll switch gears a lot in your life, but, uh, obviously you're, you're doing a good job at it and your works, your work's super cool. Um, and, uh, more than anything, you're a great person. Well, so thank you, Josh. I really appreciate that. And it's yeah. a, been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you and hang out and whatnot. So. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Now go home. All right. Bye. Bye.